Our scripture text this morning is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. If you would, please turn there with me in your pew Bibles to page 764. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is God's word for the people of Riverside Baptist Church. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, what a hearty and healthy reminder that even as we pray, asking you to take dry, dead, rotting bones and make them alive, Lord, a picture of spiritually vacant and dead, needy people who we ask to be made alive through your spirit, through your gospel. Lord, we also acknowledge that it is not in us. Lord, we could not save ourselves. We cannot save anyone else. And yet, Father, in your goodness, you have given us the joy and the privilege of being a part of your saving work in people's lives. We thank you, Lord, that we are not bystanders, that we are not sitting in the crowd merely watching you work, but you have ignited us for ministry through your spirit. You have put us on the playing field, and Father, in your strength, we go forth. We ask that you would help us to discern your word today. May it give us a passion, Father, to spread the fame of the name of your Son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up in rural Iowa, it was a rite of passage for teenagers to close out their summers by spending a few weeks in July and August detasseling corn. For those of you who don't know, detasseling corn is walking the rows of corn and removing the tassels from the tops of the corn stalks. Tassels are the pollen-producing part of the stalk. And without getting too technical, because I can't, some tassels in certain rows of corn need to be removed so that different breeds of corn can effectively cross-pollinate with each other in the field, which produces a better yield of crop. So every summer, when the corn reached about seven to eight feet tall, armies of young people all across the Midwestern part of this country were hired to work from sunup to sundown to walk the rows of corn and remove tassels from the stalks. It was exhausting work. You would spend all day in the hot, humid fields with your arms raised high to pull the tassels up off of each stalk of corn, again, seven to eight feet tall. Your hands became blistered, your allergies, if your last name was Earl, went crazy, and by the end of the day, you were exhausted, and you also smelled of sweat and mud and corn. And this went on for several days, so that you spent all day, every day, walking those fields of corn. And since you spent all day doing it, many would even dream about detasseling when they went to sleep at night. So that all day, every day, and every night, all you saw was corn. And this is how you get teenagers excited to go back to school. You you stick them in cornfields for three weeks at the end of every summer. But it paid pretty good money, which is why so many people did it. Unfortunately, however, they now accomplish 
most of this detasseling work by way of machines, and fewer and fewer young people are enlisted for the task today. Jesus loved rural metaphors, didn't he? In Matthew 4, he told his first disciples to follow him, and he would make them fishers of men. In our passage today, he speaks of sheep who are without a shepherd and of laborers who are needed for a harvest. And verses 37 and 38 are actually on the door of my office, right, as, right at my eye line, so that, so that when I open the door and I head out into the rest of the church building, those verses catch my eye, reminding me to pray to God, asking him to send out harvest laborers from me first and then from you and from all of the others whom we hope God will bring into this place. It reminds me to do what Jesus commands. And my proposition today from this text is a simple one, but one that I must report is sadly neglected today by many Christians. That followers of Jesus must plead with God for a kingdom harvest. That we are to be a harvest people. Whether we live in the big city or we live in rural America, we are to be a harvest people who devote ourselves to prayer that God might increase His laborers and thereby accomplish His harvest. Now, I want you to notice three observations about Jesus in this short text. Number one, I want you to notice what Jesus was doing. Number two, I want you to notice what Jesus was feeling. And number three, I want you to notice what Jesus was commanding. So number one, observation number one, notice in verse 35 what Jesus was doing. It says, and Jesus went... Throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus was loving people. He was loving people by teaching them God's truth, by proclaiming to them the good news, and by helping them with their felt needs. Now, these verses relate the ongoing ministry of Jesus so far in this gospel. In verse 35, it says that he went throughout all the cities and villages. This is likely a summary, a big-picture explanation of what he had been doing throughout his ministry so far in the gospel of Matthew. The Greek verb behind the words went throughout in verse 35 is in the Greek imperfect tense which implies that it was an ongoing activity. It's something that he was continually doing. It seems that Jesus' normal activity was to travel from town to town, from city to city, from village to village, mostly in the areas around Galilee, as he performed his good ministry. And this is actually the second time that Matthew pauses his narrative to reflect upon Jesus from this big picture level before he launches into an important sermon by Jesus. If you recall back in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now that's almost exactly like this verse in verse 35. And this recap back in chapter 4 then launched us into chapter 5 with his big sermon on the mount. Now here in chapter 9, verse 35, we have a second pause in the narrative before we hear Christ's second sermon in chapter 10 on the mission and persecution that would be experienced by his disciples. Now, as I've mentioned before, this book is really arranged around five discourses or five sermons. We saw the first one in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. 
And now we've seen narrative building up to this point. And when we get to chapter 10, we're going to see his second discourse, which is him communicating the need for mission and the certainty of persecution that would come to his disciples. So Matthew, the author, wants us to get the big picture about what Christ was doing throughout his ministry at this point. Now, Jesus was performing three primary tasks while he went about the land. He was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing. First of all, he was teaching. As he went from town to town, he would go into the local synagogues, the public places of worship to the Lord where the scriptures were read aloud and where prayers were offered. And Jesus, as he went into those synagogues, he would begin to teach them from the scripture that was read that day. This is the usual word in the New Testament for teaching here. And it implies that upon the reading of God's word, Jesus would then instruct the people in the meaning of that scripture. He was informing them about God's word, but with real authority from God because he was God and because he is God. And it was a teaching, of course, like they had never heard. As we learned in chapter 7, verse 29, he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes, and it astonished them. They'd never heard teaching like this. And as he went... As Jesus went about from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, teaching, his disciples were right there watching. Secondly, he was preaching. It says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Evidently, he not only taught the people in the synagogues, but as he went throughout the land, he took opportunities to proclaim to preach to the people. That word proclaim in verse 35 is the Greek word keruson, and it literally means to herald a message or to proclaim something as a herald would proclaim it. Now, heralds were messengers. Usually, they were messengers sent by kings who would go into cities and they would go into villages and they would announce or they would proclaim an edict or a message from the king himself to the people. That's what that word means. This proclaiming or this preaching, it was different than teaching, as it was more like an announcement sent from the king to his subjects. When I think of this word, I think of those guys rolling into town and they've got the trumpetists in front of them. And then all of a sudden, the guy gets up on the big pedestal and he reads the proclamation from the king that's the picture that I think we should probably have in our minds. Perhaps not quite that formal, but an emissary coming into a community and relating a message from the person of authority. There were no group texts in that day. And there were no 24-hour news sites, of course. Messages had to be sent and then delivered by heralds from town to town. And Jesus was proclaiming a message as he went the gospel of the kingdom. Now, that word gospel, a word that we deeply love if we understand its meaning, meant glad tidings or good or happy news. We love this word if we're Christians. We love this word. In this case, Jesus was going from town to town, village to village, city to city, and he was heralding the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And we have talked about the kingdom of heaven several times already. The kingdom of heaven is the manifestation of God's sovereign reign over all things as he saves his precious people and brings justice to his world. It's begun even now in the hearts of Christians, and one day it will be complete as Jesus himself with feet on the ground, on the earth, will rule as physical earthly king over all of this place. It will be under his rule. And Jesus went about the land announcing the good news that the kingdom of heaven had arrived because he was the king and he himself had arrived. The king has become his own messenger. 
Now, we have seen this before. If you recall back in Matthew chapter 1, the angel announced to Joseph when he said, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's quite a message to get from the angel. Okay, I'm supposed to name my son Jesus, and he is going to be named Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. And John the Baptist announced this as well. It says in Matthew 3, verse 2, that John went about preaching and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course, Jesus himself has done this previously. In chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So at this point in history, in Matthew chapter 9, the greatest message in world history was being announced, heralded by an angel, heralded by a prophet, and heralded by King Jesus himself that God's kingdom had finally arrived. And as Jesus went from town to town, heralding the joyful news, his disciples were right there watching. Third, he was healing As he performed his ministry, a big part of it was healing every disease and every affliction that the people were experiencing. Now, we've seen a lot of this throughout Matthew 8 and 9, haven't we? Just last week, in chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, Jesus asked two blind men if they truly believed that he could heal them. And according to their faith, he did just that, and Jesus made them able to see, didn't he? Christ's ministry was backed up by his powerful work of love to help people with their felt, tangible, physical needs, to relieve them of their sicknesses and their disease. When he loved these people, he loved all of these people because he cared about their bodily welfare as well. And once again, As Jesus went from town to town, helping human beings with their physical pains, his disciples were right there watching. I'm going to get this figured out. Hopefully that will stay. Sorry, my friends. (laughs) So his disciples see him going about, not just preaching and teaching, but actually using his hands to show love to other people. They witnessed it. So Jesus was doing something. He was loving people by teaching them God's truth. He was loving people by proclaiming to them God's good news. And he was loving people by helping them with their felt needs. And one of the reasons why he was doing this was because his disciples were watching him. A key motivation for Jesus was to train others. Like a dad who wants to teach his sons the trade, his disciples were along for the ride that they might learn. You dads and you moms, you know what that's like. The best way to teach a youngster is to have them along and have them observe while you teach. With Jesus, as he went about preaching and teaching and healing, he's got 12 guys that are along for the ride especially, and they are observing all that he was doing because one day they were going to be called to do the same thing. So that's observation number one. Observation number two, notice what Jesus was feeling. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion towards those harassed and helpless people who were leaderless. As he went about his ministry, it says he saw the crowds and he had compassion for them. That word compassion in the Greek refers to, if you can believe it, being moved in your bowels. We have a different connotation for that today. The bowels were often referred to in that day as the seat of one's love and pity, rather than the heart which we refer to today. So this compassion was to have his affections moved over their situation. 
Jesus felt a loving concern for the crowd upon seeing the condition of the crowd. Now, I have to tell you that there are some passages you get really excited to preach about, and one of those passages that I'm excited to preach about is soon coming when we're going to take up Matthew chapter 11, especially verses 28 and 29. Because those verses explicitly communicate the matchless heart of love that Jesus has for his people. It says in those verses, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find Rest for your souls. Christ's heart is gentle and lowly towards his people. He says so himself. And when he sees his people hurting, his compassion, my friends, is not just warmed, it is made blazing hot. It is quite remarkable the amount of compassion that Matthew attributes to Jesus in this gospel. Let me give you just a few examples. In Matthew 14, verse 14, it says that when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In chapter 15, verse 32, it says that Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And of course, Jesus then makes food out of nothing and gives it to the people. And then in Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus in pity, it says, that's the same word for compassion, Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So when Jesus saw his people hurting, the inner seat of his love and care was put aflame by his beloved ones because he had great compassion for them. And the reason why Jesus felt so compassionate was because it says they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Now that word harassed, it means in the Greek to be vexed or to be greatly troubled by something or someone. And the word for helpless here means something like being thrown down to the ground due to great hunger or exhaustion and being incapable of going on any further. It is as if the people had collapsed and they couldn't get back up. And Jesus, upon seeing this, has his compassion warmed towards them. And Matthew connects these words to the woeful condition of sheep who don't have a shepherd. The people had no good, tender leader to guide them, and so they were harassed by their dire circumstances, and they were helpless in their condition. Leon Morris, who com commentates on this passage, he writes well when he says that the imagery is that of a shepherdless sheep, sheep wounded and torn either by hostile animals or by thorn bushes and the like, and then prostrate and helpless. He goes on to write that sheep are defenseless animals. Without a shepherd, they are vulnerable to any attack. Even without predators, they are in trouble if they have no shepherd, for they are not good foragers. They need a shepherd to lead them in green pastures and beside still waters. And all of this imagery here, all that Jesus is saying about sheep and a shepherd, all of it alludes to what God had often said to the people of Israel regarding their leaders. That Israel's leaders were poor shepherds. So poor, in fact, that they left the sheep and they even hurt the sheep. The people of Israel were like harassed, troubled sheep who were so devastated by their condition that they lay helpless, prostrate on the ground with no one to lead them and no one to provide for them. They would starve to death without a shepherd. They had no good shepherd, for their shepherds were derelict in their duties. This is God's message to the leaders of Israel throughout the Old Testament. So I want to invite you to turn with me to one such spot in Ezekiel 34. 
Because I want you to see the prophecy here. That though there is an indictment, there's also a promise that's given. Ezekiel 34, it's page uh, 676 in your pew Bible, if you're using one. 676 in the pew Bible, Ezekiel 34. And I want you to see God's word against the evil shepherds of Israel who were supposed to be leading the people into God's truth and into good welfare. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. What an indictment. Not only have you not been protecting and providing for my sheep, but you've been slaughtering them to feed yourself. So what an indictment upon the leaders of Israel who had failed to properly guide and tend and lead God's people. But even in light of this indictment, God made a promise to them of another shepherd. Notice verse 22 of this chapter. He says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he will feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When he says David, he's not meaning the actual person David. He's using this in a prophetic way to speak of the one who would come from the line of David. The one who would be in the kingly line of King David himself. Not human David will sit on the throne, but the son of David will sit upon the throne. And more than that, the son of David will take the shepherd's crook and he will guide his sheep. He will protect them. He will feed for them. He will take them to still waters and they will drink. Ezekiel tells us that though Israel had seen some awful shepherds, a good shepherd is going to come. A good shepherd was promised, and a good shepherd indeed has come, because in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. So back in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw his people harassed and helpless and shepherdless, he was moved to compassion for his sheep, the very sheep for whom he would soon lay his life down, which is precisely what he would do. Out of love for his sheep, he would go to the cross. He would die there, the innocent Savior, shedding his blood and payment for the sins of all of his sheep so that his sheep might be forgiven, that his sheep might be given his righteousness, that his sheep might be tended well by their shepherd. Out of love for the sheep, he laid his life down. If Christ is your Savior and your Lord, my friends, know this, your shepherd has laid his life down for you, one of the sheep. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, understand, the shepherd has shed his own blood for you. Won't you join the flock by putting your faith in him? And as Jesus demonstrated his compassion, his disciples could see it. Third observation today. 
notice what Jesus was, com- was commanding back in Matthew 9. Look at Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus commanded fervent prayer to God that more gospel laborers would be sent into his vast harvest of people. Upon seeing these shepherdless, spiritually helpless people, and with such compassion in his heart, you would think that Christ's command to his disciples would be something more like, get up and start helping them. And helping them is the end result, of course. But where does Jesus point them? He points them to prayer, the source of all our spiritual power. Leon Morris puts it simply, Jesus points to prayer as the really effective thing. No matter how great our personal exertion We will not be able to gather in the whole harvest. Therefore, we are to pray to him who can send out the workers who are needed. Now, in verse 37, Jesus presents a problem. He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The corn is high, the tassels have become long, and a big yield is expected. But where are all the field workers? The laborers are not enough to bring in this great harvest. They are too few, Jesus says. Now understand, my friends, God does not need anything. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. From him and through him and to him are all things. He needs from you and me Nothing. He does not need it. But in his wisdom, God has included human laborers, blood-bought disciples, to be his field hands in the work of his harvest. He doesn't need disciples, but he has made disciples necessary for the completion of his harvest, for the accomplishment of his great commission. And his inclusion of his people in this work is to bring about an even greater joy in their hearts and an even deeper faith in their lives. As Paul said to the Philippian Christians who believed his gospel, you are my joy and you are my crown. Oh, Paul was a man who sought satisfaction in God alone And in one of the ways he sought satisfaction in God alone was to see all of the many blessings that God brought to his life. And one of the key blessings that God brought to his life was that when Paul would go about preaching the gospel, believe it, people actually heard and believed it. And then they became followers like him. They became his joy and crown. You moms know what it's like if you've had a little girl or a little boy to hold it. To have it be yours and then to nurture it and to raise it. You dads, you know what it is like to instruct and to teach and to mold. And when you see them blossom, when you see them flower, it's a joyful thing. Perhaps the most joyful thing that we human beings are able to experience with other human beings. Well, Paul says that these believers were his joy and crown. He had seen them come to know Christ as he shared He had modeled Jesus Christ and taught Jesus Christ for them and they had grown in Jesus Christ. And now he could look and say, what wonderful things God has done in these people and I can't believe that he used me as part of this. When a pastor or a preacher or an evangelist or a missionary or a guy on the street encourages you to go out and share the gospel, it is not to add one more difficult thing on your task list. It is to help you understand that there is a very important, incredibly joyful thing that must be at the top of your task list. And when you put it there, it brings a fulfillment into your life like you've not experienced before. 
Paul says they were his joy and crowned. People were his joy and crown. So Jesus, he sees the crowd. He feels a hot compassion for them. And then now he says to his disciples, I see a great harvest, but more laborers are needed. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then in verse 38, he provides his disciples with the solution to the problem with a command. He tells them in verse 38 to pray earnestly. This word is often translated in the New Testament as entreat or plead or even to beg. For instance, in Luke 5, while he was in one of the cities, Luke 5:12, there was a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him. That's the same word. Begged him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. To pray earnestly, this word for prayer, to pray earnestly, is to plead with God to do something of great importance. This is sweaty prayer. This is hard prayer. This is the prayer of work and exertion. It is to plead with God, asking Him to do something that only God can do. And what Jesus wanted them to plead for was more laborers. He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. His harvest. It's the Lord's harvest. These are his chosen people, and he's the one who will ultimately do the sowing and the reaping of human hearts and lives. But Jesus commands his disciples, and this is an imperative verb in the Greek. It's a command. It's a non-negotiable. Jesus commands his disciples to plead with God for more laborers or more gospel field hands and as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks he is going to call field hands to himself and then he is going to send them out with a sermon in chapter 10 that they might be effective for the harvest but that's coming and the first priority that we see here is prayer a pleading with god And know this, that the early church took this command with great seriousness. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, two of the men who were hearing this command of the Lord that day, were arrested for their faith. And then, thankfully, they were released. And when they returned to the rest of the church at Jerusalem in Acts 4, the people went to prayer. And they pleaded with God and listened to the result of Acts 4, verse 31. When they had prayed, that's the same word, pled, they pleaded. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their leaders had been put in prison and then released, and they have really good reason to think that more imprisonment and more persecution is coming. And they go to prayer, and they plead with God, and as they're praying to God, He fills them with the Spirit, and then they are enabled to go and continue to speak the Word of God, the Gospel with God, with a boldness from God. That boldness doesn't just appear in you. My friends, we are sheep. We're not all that bright. And we don't have a whole lot of moxie about us when it comes to fighting the spiritual fight. But when we go to God and the Good Shepherd enables us through His Spirit, we become strengthened. We become emboldened to go with His message. The Apostle Paul also, in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, he greatly valued fervent prayer for the gospel harvest because he used this same word when he asked them in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, finally, brothers, pray, same word, plead, pray for us 
that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. So Paul wants the Thessalonian Christians to pray that just as God's word, the gospel, had been honored in their hearts and lives when they believed upon hearing it, that God's word through Paul would go forth in such a way that more people would honor it. Why were they to plead with God that the word of God would speed ahead to be honored by other people? Translation, that people might believe in Jesus, that a harvest might be seen. My friends, realize that the disciples had observed Jesus and now they were to mimic Jesus. With a heart full of fiery compassion, he had taught and preached and helped a great many. And now they were to do the same thing. But it was all to begin with pleas to God for more laborers for his harvest. My friend, can I ask you, not to put a weight upon you but to give you an urging towards joy. Can I ask you, when was the last time that you spent an hour pleading with God for more devoted laborers? Pleading with God that you would become a bold, devoted laborer yourself, that your church would be saturated with such people, and that a great harvest would be seen. When was the last time you took an hour and did that? If you think that that would be a strange thing to actually sit down and pray like that, I want to help you see that the world, as you're thinking that, is actually upside down. The hour spent in prayer pleading for God is actually the normal, God-designed thing to do. It's what His Spirit has awakened you to do, one of the things. And spending that hour instead on fill-in-the-blank is probably a sad replacement. Is such prayer even a part of your life? Is even a hint of that part of your daily, weekly life? Do you ever plead with God that he would awaken people? Now, We're thankful that we can meet right now with pretty easy social distance because we don't have a very large church and God has given us a pretty nice auditorium. Wouldn't it be great, though, if the next time, and Lord, please don't let there be a next time, but the next time there's a pandemic, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the good problem of not being able to all meet in here at one time because God had filled us up with so many laborers who were active to reach people for Jesus Christ. Don't we want good problems like that? Is such a prayer to see that kind of multiplication even a part of your life? My exhortation today is that we would plead with God. And I want to ask you to make four pleas a part of your regular prayer life. Number one, plead with God to raise up more shepherds in our church and community. Pray that God would provide more elder-qualified elder-willing, shepherd-like proclaimers here at Riverside. I'm thankful for what we have, but wouldn't it be great if God would provide more who would instruct us in the things of God that urge us on to the mission of God? And with that, pray that our church would have, plead with God that we would have more evangelistic igniters here at Riverside. And what I mean by that is, you've perhaps heard that word in the New Testament, evangelist. God gifts the church with a person who's an evangelist. What I think that probably meant, what that role probably meant, was someone who wasn't necessarily the only one who was sharing the gospel with others in the church, but the one who had such a presence and such a willingness to communicate and inspire people about sharing the gospel that it just fueled the fire 
that other people were also ignited for that kind of ministry. So not just that God would give us elder qualified men, but that God would also give us men and women who are evangelistic igniters in our church who they go so prayerfully and so boldly sharing the true gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners to other people in such a way that it's just contagious, if I can use that word today. And with that, we would plead for more gospel shepherds in other churches in Newport Ritchie. Let us not ever get into the mind that thinks that we're the only game in town, that we're the only church that's necessary for our community. Oh, let us pray that God would raise up such people not just at Riverside, but at Cornerstone Community Church and Sunrise Community Church and other gospel-loving churches in our community, that they would have men and women who are filled with Jesus' love and want to go and spread his message and ignite other people with it. Pray that God would do that so that whatever means he might use, Newport Ritchie would be reached with the gospel. Second thing I want you to pray for, plead for, in your regular prayer life, Plead with God to use, plead with God to give us compassionate hearts to see the spiritual needs of others. We, we care about people's physical pains. We do, and we must. We should, like Jesus, but that's not the end. That is a means to the end. The primary problem for all people that you encounter as you go around your life the primary people, you've got to begin to see it with these lenses. The primary problem for all people is sin. They are separated from God because of sin. And the primary need, therefore, for all people is not physical, tangible helps. Those are, though those are greatly important and can be a great help in sharing. But the primary need for all people is a Savior. Primary problem, sin. Primary solution, Savior. And so I want to plead with you that you would go and begin to plead with God that we would have a deep compassion towards other people, especially for their greatest need, their spiritual need. Don't just help the guy change his tire. Don't just supply the woman with some food. Tell them about the Savior, the spiritual food of God. Tell them who the Savior is and what the Savior has done. That they are sinners, that they are bound for a Christless, joyless eternity in hell. But if they will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus who died and rose again on the cross to pay for their sins, then they will be forgiven and have eternal life. And God's Spirit will do a work in them. Let that be your fervent prayer. And third, out of four, plead with God to grant you and all of Riverside a boldness to proclaim the gospel. Now I can say this because I am so weak. I am so tempted to shy, to shy away from sharing so frequently. And if I don't pray, and if I don't have other people pray for me, I will usually cower away. I'm being honest. I would venture to guess that probably quite a few of you are like me in that department. We are to tell, however. This is a non-negotiable, and this is, in fact, our joy to tell. That we pray to God, asking Him to give us and all of our loved friends around us boldness to share Jesus. Not just saying, hey, God's good, he'll supply your financial need. Not just telling them, hey, I'm sure God will make everything get better with your physical pain that you're having. But tell them, though, I'm sorry for your financial need and I'm sorry for your physical pain. And I know, yes, there's a God who can truly help you with those things and help you persevere through those things. My friend, that's actually not your number one problem. Your number one problem is that you're apart from God. 
You're a sinner who needs a Savior, and God out of love has supplied it to you. And by the way, one day he's going to take all those financial problems, and he's going to take all of those physical problems, and he's going to remove them because one day his kingdom's not just going to be in the heart, but it's going to be over all the earth. Give them that. Ask God to help you focus on perhaps just one person in your life. Just one. Just one person. And then pray fervently for that person and for the boldness to share with that person and then go and tell to that person. And number four, and this is an area that we must do better as a church, myself foremost, plead with God to call and send out from Riverside missions goers. People who will love people like God, who will go and teach the word of God, who will go and preach the gospel of God, and people who will plant churches through the power of God. That God would send out from Riverside and from our local church community individuals who would go with Jesus with the gospel to peoples who need to hear him. I'm not talking about just evangelism as you go kind of ministry. I'm talking about the kind of ministry where a man and a woman say, we're going to trust God. We think he's calling us to this. We want to be trained and then we want to go because we want to see Jesus use us to reach people who don't currently have Jesus. Missionaries. So pray, beg, plead, ask fervently that God would do these things. And I'm convinced that if we do that faithfully, we will see an increase. Because as Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, Oh, would you help us to be faithful? It is so easy for us to cower away in fear. It is so easy for us, Father, to rely upon our own strengths, and when we realize our own lack of strength, Father, to shy away. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a bold people by first making us a praying, pleading people. Lord, let us incorporate this into our prayer lives, that though it's so important to pray for others' felt needs and to help them with those things, Lord, it's so much deeper, Father, to pray over the spiritual needs, Father. And you have commanded us with your Son to be people who pray like this. Oh, won't you help us, Father, to be this kind of disciple? And we pray this in Jesus' name.